I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. I'm with my friend Charlie Deist, who is not only the technician, he also keeps me on track with occasional questions and timely summarizations. This is episode six, How the Liturgy Transforms the Culture. So David, last time we discussed why you feel that mass production, capitalism, and industrialization are not negative influences on the culture, but rather that these are driving forces that magnify, they propagate the underlying culture uh, for good or for, for ill. So if not these forces, then what, what are actually the forces that, that are underlying the culture? I would go to John Paul II as an answer for this. So, but just to, to clarify, I, I don't think that these things have no influence. Uh, they can, uh, but they're not the main influence. And they're, they're, as, we, as you said, <clears throat> um, for the most part, what they do is propagate and magnify the underlying culture. So John Paul II said in his encyclical called Centesimus Annus, which is the title is 100 years, and it was uh, written to commemorate the hundred years since uh, Leo the Thirteenth, I think, uh, wrote his encyclical Rerum Novarum, which is seen as the the first um, on Catholic social teaching, uh, which is uh, really looking at society. Um, and it was Rerum Novarum was written at the end of the nineteenth century. Uh, Pope Leo was looking at the world around him, and so it's. Uh, really just a branch of ethics, Catholic social teaching, uh, of, moral, of, of moral teaching, but really it's applied to uh, society uh, today. And so to commemorate this and to uh, develop his own thinking on the matter in the light of um, his place in the 20th century, John Paul II wrote this encyclical Centesimus Annus. Now he says, uh, it's interesting that this is about social teaching. Um, he talks a lot, perhaps in this encyclical, more about economics directly uh, than any other papal encyclical that I've read. He, he gets deeply into economic theory. When was he writing exactly? Um, 100 years uh, after Virum Novarum, so uh, yes, I, I can't remember. Late, late 80s, 80s yeah. Um, maybe 87, I, and I, I'm open to correction on that. I, I know you're Googling it now. Um, it is, uh, remember that John Paul II's background is that he uh, grew up in Poland, mm -hmm. uh, and in terms of his outlook, affected very strongly by having lived under both the Nazis and the and communist rule. Um, and this encyclical is very strongly in favour of the, what he calls the free economy. Uh, it is said that he actually consulted Frederick Hayek, in fact, before he wrote this. I don't know whether that's true or not. Uh, that Frederick Hayek being one of the, the Nobel laureate, uh, the economist, who is one of the, the leading figures in the Austrian school. Anyway, what is interesting is that in an encyclical covering economics and social teaching, he does discuss culture as well. And this paragraph, which I'm going to read, appears within it. He says, it is not possible to understand man on the basis of economics alone. So economics does have something to say, but not we can't use that alone. 
nor to define him simply on the basis of class membership. Man is understood in a more complete way when he is situated within the sphere of culture through his language, history and the position he takes towards the fundamental events of life such as birth, love, work and death. At the heart of every culture lies the attitude man takes to the greatest mystery, the mystery of God. Different cultures are basically different ways of facing the question of the meaning of personal existence. When this question is eliminated, the culture and the moral life of nations are corrupted. So if we remember the my definition, my the what the way that I view culture, which we discussed last time, as a, a pattern that emerges through, if you like, the aggregated view, the, the, the wide horizon, the view of the wide horizon of a society as a whole. But what is contributing to this picture of the pattern of activity are lots and lots of individual and personal, individual behaviour and personal relationships. And so what John Paul II is saying is that really we can discern from that overall pattern of the society what, in general, the view of that society is um, towards God. He's saying that ultimately that is what affects the culture. Uh, And because every decision we make is informed by our view. And even to say, I don't wish to consider it, it is to take a position on it. Uh, We cannot escape uh, this, this question of faith at any level. So the question then is, what influences faith? Uh, This is a big question, particularly for those who wish to evangelize. And what I would say is that the most influential factor in preserving and propagating the faith is the liturgy, the church's liturgy. And the church fathers used a phrase to describe this, the principle that I'm, I'm drawing on, and it's, it's, this is a Latin phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi, uh, which means rule of prayer, rule of faith. And what it's saying is that the, what we pray not only reflects our faith, uh, but it also informs it. So, it. so therefore, for Catholics who are going to Mass, we hope praying the Liturgy of the Hours, of course not all do, but for those who are doing that, this is the most profound influence on preserving and nourishing our faith. <clears throat> and it's interesting that the word cult is used to describe religious practice, and it's also uh, it's where we get the word agriculture. It's something that we wish to cultivate, to nourish, um, and a cult nourishes man, and uh, the culture is a reflection of the cult. So cult and culture are linked. Now, I know etymology, the derivation of words, um, doesn't automatically prove connections. Uh, meanings of words can change, and uh, but... I think that in this case it is interesting to see that uh, the ideas of these things uh, go right back to uh, Roman times, so I'm quoting Latin there, or I'm using Latin derivations, and clearly Roman society understood that the way we worship sets the mark for the society as a whole. That's why they, when the Christians came along and they wouldn't worship, worship the emperor, 
it was so important to them because that was whatever else you did, that was the unifying action for the for the empire, for the Roman Empire, and for the Roman world. And if you dissented from that, this was extremely important. And of course, the Christians did. So it's an underlying attitude, John Paul says, uh, the attitude toward this mystery, the mystery of God. In this section that you're quoting, he doesn't directly reference faith, or, but maybe he's kind of couching the faith in terms of this attitude toward God. Well, the attitude takes to the greatest mystery, the mystery of God. So I think what he's saying there is, of course, there are people who don't have faith in God, but mm. that, even that affects the culture. So, But ultimately, the faith or the lack of it is the most profound influence. Yeah. Um, so I then am adding that idea of lex orendi, lex credendi, and saying it is the liturgy which pr- profoundly affects that. Okay. Now... I'm going to go later on. I'm going to talk about some concrete examples of how that works its way through. Mm-hmm. It, it isn't just a um, an abstract idea, and uh, there are quite a lot of things I can point to. But the the other question then that many might have is, well, if only Catholics are going to the liturgy, how? What about a culture which is not exclusively Catholic? How how can it affect that? And the answer is that if uh, is that the way that we can hope to influence the culture as Catholics hmm. um, is through our actions and, and trying to create a, a wider culture which is informed by our Catholicism. And the goal, therefore, is to try and prime people so that they start to feel part of this, they recognise the beauty of it, and through our lives and our work, uh, in some way it speaks of God. And so we can draw people into that place where they can encounter him personally, which is the liturgy. So it needs us as agents of the church, if you like, to play a part. And so the culture really affects people. It draws people in. It speaks of something beyond itself, which is God. Um, And the place where we encounter that is is in the Mass. So it needs us to live it and create a culture which reflects it, but at the same time, invite people to church at a simple level. People aren't going to make that jump or they're unlikely to unless something is saying explicitly as well this Mm. is emanating from God. So you're drawing a link between first faith and the liturgy and then the liturgy and the culture. Yes, that's it, exactly. That's the line of causation. Yeah. And... What I I want to do is just refer us back to the last podcast where we talked about this idea of emergence because I think it's it's a point that's worth making that people have free will and not everybody is a committed Catholic, not even all Catholics are committed Catholics. We know that the the church is a flaw, as a human institution, the church is uh, flawed. Uh, There are reminders of that in the news every day even at the moment um, with a, as I speak there is this um, the Pope is of course is in the news in regard to the uh, the uh, child abuse scandal however that may um, work its way through at the very least it points to the the, the truth that um, every human institution is going to have problems because there are people within it and the church is no exception so to the degree that it, it, it is human, there are, there are those problems. So the question then is, how can we hope to have a, 
um, a, uh, a Catholic uh, culture? And the answer is that um, each person behaves according to their own preferences. They act as individual. If we have a free society, which is what we, I feel is the, the, the goal, so freedom allows me to act without constraint. That's one aspect of freedom. But also, if I'm truly free, informed by my faith. And that is an ideal which uh, um, we can, in both cases, the lack of constraint and the, uh, the, the, the degree to which we are informed by our faith interactions are two ideals that I don't know if any society has ever had those. Mm -hmm. And as, of course, it's, it, to a degree, it's about my personal response to God's grace, which is always going to be lacking. But nevertheless, um, to, by degrees, people are uh, responding to and acting in accordance with God's grace, to, but to different measure. Um, but um, through this network of personal interactions with each person being free, um, acting uh, for the good as they see it, um, you can nevertheless take a step back and if you view the society as a whole, you can discern an order mm. which represents the aggregated effect of all of this. But, but nevertheless, is not, that is not apparent in individual actions. It's a paradox, really, uh, but one that appears in so many aspects of the natural world and in society. Um, and the way in which we observe that order um, is another way in which we can uh, look, study, for example, the cosmos is, is, a, is also a reflection of that order and we can account for it mathematically and use that to inform our actions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so if we're thinking about this linkage and how it can maybe go awry. Uh, what, what is the reason that getting liturgy, why is, why is it so important to get liturgy correct? Well, I think for the reason that um, it does influence our faith so profoundly. If you, that um, It's interesting that uh, one of the ways in which, uh, for example, I think President Obama uh, said he felt he wanted to give people freedom of worship. And I don't know what he meant exactly by that, but... The way that that was interpreted by many people, they said uh, what it means is he, he wants the religion to be a private thing and he doesn't want it to be public. Um, and so he's pushing people, you know, you can believe what you believe in private, but I don't want this to be part of the society as a whole. Now, I don't know if that's precisely what he meant. People can be quoted out of context. But actually, freedom of worship is the most important freedom, uh, ironically. it's Even though it is done in a church and it's and to a large degree out of sight of the general public um, it's what affects us most profoundly and this is why the, the we need um, an authentic liturgy a liturgy which um, genuinely reflects um, a, a way to worship god and so how do we know what that is well the, the uh, you'll get a different question depending on who you ask. Liturgical battles are the most um, strongly fought, I would say, in the church. And it's no accident. It, people say, I, I just don't, I don't want to fight over liturgy. Actually, if there's anything worth 
um, fighting for it is an authentic liturgy. That is what defines us. It's what it's what a church is. Mm. The 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 um, essential uh, activity of a, a church. What defines a religion is actually mm. their the cult. It is the it is the worship, uh, even more than what they believe. It is what is what we believe too. But that actually derives from our worship. Um, now, why? Um, are there problems? Uh, again, I don't want to get into a long sort of discussion of the liturgy, but uh, Pope Benedict the uh, Sixteenth, in his book *The Spirit of the Liturgy*, again, talks about a separation of the culture of faith and the wider culture that occurred at the beginning of the nineteenth century, and so he's saying that uh, somehow at that around that point. Um, the, 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 lit, the, the culture associated with the practice of faith stopped informing the wider culture. Um, and the question as to why that is, is, a big, is the big question. This, it, it, it's for precisely that reason that you started to get liturgical reform occurring in the 19th century. Uh, the Second Vatican Council was part of that uh, momentum of the need to to reform the the, uh, the liturgy and the culture again a huge topic big sort of uh, point of contention what what actually happened as a result of that council I don't want to get into that in detail here but um, I just really want to make the point that it is important now why do I think that this break occurred this dis, um, disconnection um, I, my feeling is that uh, a lot of this, or one remedy, one part of the, this, is again connecting our worship to uh, the material aspects and the, and the symbols that are connected with it. Because um, it, when it becomes purely an internal cerebral um, affair, then um, it's, it's not engaging with the material world and therefore it's very difficult then to see how it extends out into the wider culture. So what I'm thinking of particularly here is the one example that I always bring up is the importance of when we pray in the liturgy engaging with visual imagery because there you have something visual, material, it is an image of something that we see uh, that actually relates to an invisible truth. And when we engage with that personally, um, the understanding at a deep level of how the material world can be formed and can represent and manifest the glory of God is impressed upon our hearts in a deep way. And in the liturgy, we are transformed supernaturally. And so it is affecting how our conformity if you like to the truth because we we are not just thinkers we are people who have body and soul mm. and so when our worship in, engages with all the senses then it affects the whole person and I would say then naturally and intuitively when we go out into the world it is that much easier um, to the extent that it, it, it'll just happen naturally that what we do as we go about our daily lives, much of which is about engaging with the material world, with other people, we will do it in a way that reflects 
what took place in, in, in the worship. So this is one reason why I, 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 we had a podcast that said um, use, use of sacred images is much more important than life and death. Mm. It, it, it really is something that makes that connection between the worship and the material world and allows, for, I believe, for us then to be bridges between what goes on in church and the wider, wider culture. Um, and in fact, I can show you examples of how um, you can see the forms. Uh, there are a number of ways in which this is manifested that I can point to and illustrate. Uh, and I'm going to talk about some next week when I talk about the mathematical analysis of the cosmos and the patterns of the liturgy and how it became a principle of design um, for uh, artifacts, for buildings, for architecture, for the ordering of our lives. Um, but uh, the other thing I could do is just show how um, those images and those aspects of the culture of faith that were in harmony with right worship worked their way out into the wider culture. Mm -hmm. If worship is a, is this influence on uh, on the culture and in particular through the channel of preserving the co correct belief or you know keeping faith in line with 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 the truth how do we know how are some of these fierce liturgical battles being debated what what sorts of arguments do people bring to the table are they mainly drawing on his the historical liturgy and saying this is how it's been done or how do you keep a living tradition going in line with the truth and well the, the, that is exactly it, it it's about looking at tradition trying to understand so a, a tradition is living and developing and the liturgy uh, develops the, the phrase that's often used is the organic development of the liturgy so um, although I'm not actually sure quite what the, that mechanism would be um, but the, the way in which we worship has to be in accord with uh, the, the tradition mm. um, and this is if there's anything that um, reflects tradition with a capital T, the, the faith handed on by Christ to the church and which is preserved. Much of that is in the practice of worship. Um, so scripture, of course, is part of that, but the, the wider body of tradition is the practice of the faith or includes uh, very directly the practice of the faith and the liturgy. So it's discussion about what uh, the, the disputes, if you like, relate to changes that seem to have occurred as the liturgy has drifted and people would say, well, it's moved away from its core principles um, and then the disagreements occur as to how that might be corrected. And mm. the liturgy has been modified and redirected over centuries, some of it happening naturally, some of it uh, being directed in certain ways. Um, the big argument about the Second Vatican Council is that some people feel that uh, the interpretation of the council uh, really went against tradition. And this is, this, so although it was an attempt in, within the council to redirect the liturgy in certain ways towards tradition, its implementation actually did the opposite. Um, and uh, my personal feeling um, is that 
really that's what happened, that the council was good, but its implementation was bad. Mm. Um, and we need a, a, just to, to reassert what the council said. And um, I, my understanding is that I, I take my guidance from Benedict and I understand that's what, where he stands. The phrase that's often used is the reform of the reform. Um, anybody who's involved in these battles, I, I write for a, a website called the New Liturgical Movement, um, and there are people who are very, very interested in that. And uh, this becomes very, the, the debates are, um, the, the subject is hotly debated. This is you know, the, the um, w- where we actually go, what we do, how the church can change it, becomes a very, very uh, contentious affair sometimes. And I'm not worried by the fact that it's contentious. I think that is inevitable. Obviously, I wish there was huge agreement and we all just went in the same direction. But it doesn't surprise me. This is an important matter. Um, And it's uh, one thing that you'd expect uh, if there's a force to undermine the faith, ultimately the devil, you'd expect the liturgy to be attacked. Hmm. So this is worth thinking about and uh, addressing. So I'm still trying to understand a little bit more concretely what the criteria would be for determining, especially with something like visual imagery. Uh, my experience coming into the Catholic Church at the same time that I was also looking uh, to Eastern Orthodox faith and worship as maybe the, the route that I was going to take. And there's a big distinction between the Eastern Orthodox liturgy and what you encounter when you walk into their worship spaces yes. and what you find when you walk into a Catholic church. And there's the more traditional Catholic churches where maybe they celebrate a Latin mass, but even that Latin mass is contingent on a particular time and place in history. So it's not like we can point to that tradition, whereas it seems like maybe this is a false impression, the styles of iconography and the, the modes of worship in the Eastern Orthodox Church have a more direct lineage further back to some sort of tradition and the way that they have kind of more guidelines for their imagery compared to the Catholic Church where you're more likely to encounter works of art that are just commissioned more recently, you know, after the, the Renaissance or, um, you know, statues and things like this. How, yes. how would a lay person go about determining whether... They're in the right place. Uh, well, for, for I, 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 yeah. So the, the I, I, I mean, unless you want to, uh, it, it's a difficult question, is what I would say, um, and it's a combination of what we think, but through reason, our personal response to it, and that's in the end what most people do. They go mm-hmm. where they feel comfortable, and then justify it afterwards. I think that's what most people do, but the. Uh, if we really want to get to the bottom of it, the, the principle, I think, I, I think it's easier to talk about it in the context of art because the liturgy is so contentious. We could talk about that for a, 10 years of podcasts, okay? We still wouldn't exhaust the subject. But the underlying principle, I think, and in the context of art, this applies to is something that, again, Benedict XVI called the hermeneutic of continuity. So, um, a living tradition does develop, and there are two traditions. There is the Eastern and the Roman, and um, the, the Roman tradition developed in a particular way, the Eastern developed in, in another, and it's probably fair to say that the Roman uh, 
tradition um, has not had uh, the same constraints on it as the Eastern. And, and thinking now about uh, the art, going now into art, um, but I think it's, you know, it's not, there are parallels with the liturgy, but um, now what has happened is that uh, th that in the East, there were grave attacks on the um, on the use of images, and so in the East um, they had to fight much more directly to retain images and to work out what an authentic image is, mm. and so things were laid down, um, and the tradition as a result of that, I think the desire to preserve what was done was much stronger. In the West. Uh, there have been iconoclastic periods, but never quite the same sort of thing going on uh, in the earliest part of the, in the first thousand years, at any rate. Um, and so, th this principle of the hermeneutic of continuity allows for development and change. A living tradition will always respond to and reflect and speak to the people of its age. It cannot be set in stone. Um, it cannot be frozen. If it does that, it will die too. And in fact, that is true even of the iconographic tradition in the East. There are local variations. There are variations with time um, as well. Um, and But the, uh, the artistic tradition of, of the Western Church is much richer. Uh, they haven't had the same worry, people attacking it in the past, the, the use of images in quite the same way. And so it became uh, much more varied. Um, the hermeneutic of continuity says that, uh, that principle says that um, you can allow for change, but um, you don't change things unless it's needed. So you don't change for the sake of it. Um, and you work on a principle, a conservative principle, that you keep things as they are, even if you don't know why they are as they are, and you only change things as seems apparent uh, and as required by the church. Um, this is also articulated by um, Pope Pius XII in, in an encyclical called Mediata Dei, where he says that um, there are e there's even a place for modern artistic forms in the church, provided they meet the, these, the stylistic elements and the content meet the needs of the church. Uh, the art should not be changed simply on the whim of the artist, out of a desire to be original. Um, those are not valid reasons for changing. Uh, now, I would say that what has happened in the West is that that principle has been broken, um, that because of that, great, that, that greater freedom, people have... Uh, taken license if you like and uh, they've gone astray all over the place and a lot of that so that is because um, people didn't understand their own traditions that well and what it what actually has happened is it's forced us to examine it and look at it and work out how we can work within a tradition while being of our time and that's what a lot of my work in art has been about so let's talk about some specific art uh, you teach a course, um, and we're going to look at some images. Are these from a particular course of yours? 
Well, I, I used to teach at Thomas More College, and uh, I developed a course called The Way of Beauty. Um, Thomas More College of Liberal Arts in New Hampshire, that's what brought me over to the United States. And so I would discuss these principles in the course, um, and then they were developed further for my book, The Way of Beauty, and then uh, probably the fullest presentation of them uh, that I've made um, is in the Master of Sacred Arts program at Pontifex University, where I'm provost. Um, so th there's a lot to say here. We can't yeah. deal with that if this is a single podcast. But one little example, just to show how this the liturgy can drive the forms of a culture when that connection is there, when the liturgy is healthy, the forms are in harmony with it, the arts and the architecture and the music, the artistic forms are in harmony with it, and how it then informs the wider culture. I'm going to, I, I, we can go through a couple of examples. So one that I can, we can talk about is the Baroque of the 17th century, um, which really came out of the... Um, what started that was the Council of Trent in, in the 16th century, uh, which was a response to um, actually one iconoclast, a period of iconoclasm in the in the West was the Protestant Reformation, who were anti-image. So, um, but it's interesting that in response to the the Protestant Reformation, the Council of Trent um, made several dogmatic assertions, assertions countering the uh, the the. Uh, the faith of the Protestant, of the reformers, uh, but also uh, reformed the liturgy and made certain recommendations for art because they understood that this was vital. If we're going to propagate this, if we're going to preserve it and uh, work with it, so they they define them in broad principles. They didn't get spe into specifics, and it took about fifty years for this to uh, work its way through. Um, but by the early um, 17th century, so we're talking the early 1600s, in Italy, uh, led by, probably most people would say by Caravaggio, there, there are other significant artists uh, as well, you get the c culmination of this. Um, what happened was that all the, the, the naturalism of the High Renaissance, which probably wasn't that great in terms of a liturgical art form, Benedict was negative at Benedict XVI, for example, to this writing in the modern era, was negative about it. But nevertheless, they looked at that, drew discerningly from it, and created, I think brilliantly, an integration of style and content in harmony with worship that was appropriate to its day. And that's the Baroque style of the 17th century. And it began as a liturgical art form. It began as art for the liturgy. Um, it was pedagogical, it taught the truths of the faith, but primarily, as with all liturgical art, while um, reflecting the truths of the faith, it, in, it was there to engage people and direct them to a fruitful encounter with Christ in the liturgy. Um, and so I, on the, the blog, um, I, that on my website where you can download this podcast, I'm going to put some images uh, and a, a presentation. So the first one, we're in St. Jerome's convent here, um, is a painting of St. Jerome by the French Baroque artist called Georges de la Tour. Now the things that characterise this are the strong contrast of light and dark, 
So you have a figure in candlelight, otherwise surrounded in darkness, reading a uh, piece of uh, words on a piece of paper. The brightest part of that is the word. It's it's the paper, and the contrast is deliberate. The uh, there is a visual language here, and the dark represents the presence of evil and suffering in a fallen world, and it's contrasted with the light so that it represents the light with a capital L and the light overcomes the darkness. And anybody who knows the religious art of this period, uh, Georges de Latour, uh, Caravaggio, uh, Rubens, for example, this contrast of light and dark is very apparent and it's deliberate. It's, it's telling us that the light overcomes the darkness and the message is one of Christian hope that transcends suffering. And they did this not simply so that people could sit in art classes, be told that this is the visual language and then look at it and discern it. It was felt that, the, that if you incorporated this into the picture, we would intuitively grasp that truth as it speaks of it in a special way that even those who haven't been told that this is the intention of the artist will in some way pick out that the light overcomes the darkness. Uh, and that's important in art. If you have to be, have everything explained to you, there's, education has its place, but at some level it, it must speak to people uh, at a natural level too. I'm imagining a modern art piece where it's completely uh, opaque and there's you know yes. some symbolism that only the artist understands, but when he gives his explanation, everyone is suddenly floored by the profundity of, of the piece <laughs> of art. Or, or very often what happens is the artist refuses to reveal what it is because it would, it would just become obvious that it's so mundane that right. it's disappointing. They prefer to shroud it in mystery. Uh, Tom Wolfe, who's just died actually, the American novelist and uh, commentator, wrote a brilliant little book about what you just described called The Painted Word, in which he says that it's, it's so obscure that everybody has their own personal visual language that is not understood by anybody that you have to have a huge explanation and so he says the logic therefore is why why not just abandon the painting and just have the words and he says and that he noticed that ultimately that's what you had you had words on canvas um, anyway that's not good enough for us as christians mm. and the baroque artists didn't need to do that but what's happened what we see is that that style uh, of art really took hold of people and so they started then to paint mundane art art of the world um, in that style and so the next painting I have is a portrait by done by uh, Sir Anthony van Dyke who was a Flemish artist who moved to England that's why he was knighted um, but he was a student of Rubens the great artist and as a teenager he painted this amazing portrait, which when people saw it, they thought this guy is going to be great. Mm. Um, and so portraiture started, and we see this in the Dutch artists, Franz Hals, for example, or Rembrandt. Um, they reflected this um, style in the, the painting of people. And through this, of course, they imbued, because there's, they were able to manifest invisible truths by a visible means and in the context of portraiture um, they it gave their portraits a, a strong sense of the psychology 
of the person. The Rembrandt is known for this. I would say it's there in this portrait of a man with a big ruff in Belgium or Holland in uh, the 17th century. And then, um, after portraiture, you start to get landscapes, uh, the painting of the wider world in this style. And it took a long time, actually, for artists to master landscapes, um, maybe even 200 years. It wasn't, I would say it wasn't until the 19th century that they really understood how to bring this out into mm. portraiture well. And so the painting I have is of the French landscape painter Corot. Corot, uh, a sort of half stab at a French pronunciation there. And uh, But what he's doing, he's drawing on this tradition which had its roots in the sacred art of the Baroque in the 17th century. Okay, so what I'm going to do next then is also give a little example of that illustrates... A couple of things. Again, the power of liturgical forms to spread out. One question that people might have, by the way, is how does it, how, where does this power come from? Why does it spread? And the answer is, is it's beauty. When people looked at art painted in this way, they, they said, I want art that looks like that. Mm. And that included the Protestant reformers. So you had the artists in Holland who looked at it and said, we want portraits that look like that. We want landscapes that look like that because it is beautiful. And they even then developed a theology to justify it, I would say, after the fact. They, they developed their own parallel Protestant theology of art uh, to allow them to do this. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It, it, was, it seemed to be consistent with what the Catholics were saying, but just uh, narrower because it focused on the Protestant worldview. But nevertheless, they did a great job in producing beautiful art of a mundane culture that is consistent with the, the, the religious. And so, and again, I want just to, why am I telling you this? This illustrates how liturgical art can inform the wider culture. And so then it's infiltrated the Protestant world, this Catholic art form, and I'm sure, had an, an impact on drawing people back to the faith in time. Okay, so another example I'm going to talk about here is one that began as a Catholic form in the early 19th century, but was, was propagated eventually by Protestants because the Catholic liturgy was unable to do it in many ways. Um, and that is the, uh, the Gothic art, and, and particularly the architecture uh, in this case, um, that began in England in the early 19th century. So they, they, they might call it neo-Gothic or Victorian neo-Gothic. I don't like to think of it like that. It, it, it's almost as if that's a disparaging term. I think that the Gothic style that developed in the 19th century really is a participation in the earlier Gothic style. The man who was at the heart of this was... Um, a Catholic convert called uh, Augustus Wellesby Pugin, P-U-G-I-N. He died fairly young, around 40 or something, but he did a detailed analysis of what he called pointed architecture, uh, which he felt was the true Christian architecture. He reacted against the dominance at that time, this is the early 19th century, of neoclassicism. Uh, so the 
the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., for example, is neoclassical. And certainly, I think that has a beauty, and I'm not wholly against it, but uh, Pugin uh, did feel that it was inappropriate for church architecture and went back to what he felt was the, the last authentic Christian architecture, which was the Gothic, which he would see in the towns of England, dating from the Middle Ages. I grew up in England, and uh, when I think of what a church ought to be, my vision is of Gothic architecture. I, it, it's because I've seen the medieval churches and also the Victorian recreations. And it, to me, that just speaks naturally of what a, a church is because it's part of the culture that I, I come from. So but, what period exactly was this? did this originate? So the Gothic is medieval. It, so it's from 1200 or 1130, something that depends on where you draw the lines, through to about... Uh, the late, well, in England, there was no high renaissance through to the 16th century. Uh, so Henry VIII, for example, was building late Gothic buildings in, in England. The new Gothic, the neo-Gothic, is the early 19th century. So 1830, 1840, it began. And it dominated uh, right the way through to the early 20th century. Hmm. Um, so I, I, there's a series of photos which I'm going to show and I'm going to des describe in principle that, that I realise this is just audio you can go to the blog and see them or some people will be getting this on just audio but I, I think that will be fine so I, I will label them on the blog so this is St Mary's in Newcastle-upon-Tyne and then the next slide is of the interior and you can see mm. a gothic window a stained glass window gothic art, pointed arches and even... The floor, which has been a tiled floor, which is in this geometric patterned art, which Pugin will have seen in, for example, Westminster Abbey, uh, the Westminster uh, pavement, it's called. Um, and so he's recreated this beautifully, uh, wonderfully. Now, what happened is that the Anglicans at this time were, um, there was something called the Oxford Movement, um, the leading figure in this was, uh, well, one of the leading figures was Newman, John Henry Newman, uh, as part of the Anglican Church, were trying to assert that at the Anglican Church was the original church. That they had the line back to Christianity, and that, and part of it also was this is the idea that the British Empire therefore was was playing the role of the Roman Empire historically in propagating through the Anglican Church, the authentic Christianity. And so people like Newman did a lot of research. They went back and looked at tradition. Their liturgy uh, became very, very in form, uh, very traditional, uh, very high church. It was in English, so it connected with people. But um, what we see, for example, in the Anglican ordinariate today, that the um, English liturgy which has a traditional form and is now part of the Roman Catholic Church um, is that has been inherited from the work that was done by these uh, high Anglicans in the early 19th century. Now uh, some of those people then converted it's always been a path uh, to some degree for conversion to Catholicism because people really you know some it strikes some of these people that 
when they look at history, actually the Catholic Church, what they're trying to recreate is contained within the Catholic Church. And Newman himself was one of those people. He, he became Catholic. Mm. Um, but you had um, a liturgy, which in structure, if you like, the, the real presence was not there in the Anglican liturgy, but it um, connected with people because it was in English. Uh, and you had a flourishing of art and architecture in harmony with it. Um, and so the High Anglicans started to build neo-Gothic churches. And I've got a picture here of the, the last neo-Gothic church to be built, which was begun in the early 19th century, uh, early 20th century, early 1900s, in the town of Liverpool, where I, close to where I grew up. And it was completed in 1978. And um, it, uh, it, it is a, I remember going as a schoolboy, the, the Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth II opened it and just being open mouthed in wonder in this church. It's, it's got, apparently within it, it has the, <clears throat> the uh, largest Gothic arch in the world, but it's on a grand scale. Um, spectacular and there there are even people who in the sort of medieval way I remember they featured a guy who's who had been carving gargoyles up on the roof for the whole of his working lifetime and he retired when and he lived he worked beyond normal retirement age until the, the cathedral was completed um, and so this was from the early 1900s to 1978 they built this church by the time it was finished, um, times had changed. And so <clears throat> the spirit which had created it had almost moved on within the Anglican church. But nevertheless, it is a stunning, beautiful church. And what it shows is that it's, we can quite easily reestablish beautiful traditions today. It's, I think it's a great lesson. Um, and there, there is kind of a question of whether we could actually build cathedrals the same way that we did does anyone have that knowledge? Oh, I think we, I, I think we could. Um, and what would it take, though? I mean, we, we think of these things as almost being big public works projects, or at the time they were public works projects. Well, the right. Anglican Church at that time was uh, the uh, institutional church. So mm -hmm. whether it got government money, I don't know, uh, but it had, will have had something like it. Um, but that isn't true of the medieval churches, that they were built through, through communities contributing. And if there is a will, um, then people, these things can be built. Uh, there is this, I have a great faith in the, the idea that um, when people appreciate this and really want it, the money will come forward. Mm -hmm. um, and people will contribute that in, in all sorts of different ways um, and it can come from communities we have spent in this country uh, here in California I think the bill for Los Angeles Cathedral was 120 million um, so the, the church found the money the, the money wasn't the issue I would say the issue was the design yeah. and the spirit behind it so I'm not worried that these this could be done um, what you need is the will for people to do it. And yeah. um, 
even if we had we it, it isn't simply a question of trying to re find the craftsman who can carve gargoyles and where are they are where are they there's nowhere teaching it if we've got man we've got god and god's grace and faith yeah. we can do this we can establish it afresh and anew i'm predicting a growth industry in 3d printed gargoyles okay <laughs> all right maybe that's no, our next business venture charlie <laughs> yeah just a, a few intermediate steps before then actually sort of gargoyle art i can imagine that really catching on okay. yeah but so anyway let's let's put up a contrast on the blog between sort of the modern big bucks cathedral and the old the, the gothic style yes uh, and what do you think what is it i think that you have said something in the past about uh the rather than having the uh the faith inform the architecture instead we have sort of the culture and increasingly it's a secular culture informing how we design our churches well yes and i think the greatest example to contrast with it is the roman catholic cathedral in liverpool hmm. um, which was built in the 1960s in about four years um, which they call in Liverpool Paddy's Wigwam, which is probably offensive to just about everybody I nowadays. See, I see, I've just pulled it up. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, okay. it's, it's interesting, it's different. Okay, so that is sadly what the Catholics were doing in the 1960s. Mm. Um, I remember going in there. Looks like a spaceship. Yes. Um, so in San Francisco, we have Our Lady of Maytag, which is another concrete form. Uh -huh. This is Liverpool's equivalent. Um, and it doesn't even really speak of a church. Uh, I remember I went and it was in the 1970s and it was already leaking. The rain was coming in. There were buckets everywhere mm. inside. Um, but, you know, whether or not you accept my arguments depends on whether you look at that and think that's ugly. And the first one, the, the, the Anglican Cathedral, which is built on Gothic principles, is beautiful. Um, if you don't agree with me, you're going to struggle you're not going to be with me for much of the argument but my uh, argument is that uh, one is consistent with the tradition the other one is really looking to the secular world but not in an, in an undiscerning way there's no problem in looking for influences outside in the in the contemporary world that is fine christianity has always done that but you have to do it discerningly you have to say is this in harmony with the way we worship um, and I would say that this isn't it's in the round for example mm. how can we all face in one direction waiting for the second coming of Christ if we're all facing each other yeah um, just as a simple level uh, now just to, to go into the um, the, the influence of the neo-gothic so again this began as church architecture yeah, quick quick question. What are some examples that people might know of famous churches? Notre Dame, is that Gothic? That's um, traditional Neo Gothic. Okay. In America, these British architects were hired. Remember, America is the up-and-coming country, and particularly in the late 19th century, early 20th century, a lot of the churches in New York City and Boston yeah. were either made by American architects who learned how to do this, um, or British architects who were brought over. Hmm. Um, so 
Uh, I think it's St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. Is, okay. I think that's what it is, is built in this era. Um, and it's splendid. And it's a sign. It doesn't have to be um, centuries and centuries old. It's, th this was you know, completed at, the, at some point at the end of the 19th century and is a splendid cathedral. Earlier you talked about the Baroque period of architecture yes. or art. Well, I was talking about art, but there is it has its distinctive uh, aspects in all the culture. So there's architecture and music, and right. As well. I can picture Baroque music as sort of, uh, you know, a lot of harp and kind of <laughs> yeah twangy. I no, I mean I. It's it's probably not so strong as liturgical music, actually. Hmm. Um, I would yeah. say. But what what might people recognize? Uh, or could we could we give as an example of Baroque art that people might have just as a point of reference? Uh, but, well, the art is um, artists such as Rubens. We mentioned Van Dyck, uh, Georges de la Tour, Velazquez. Um, uh, the seventeenth century okay. is what we're thinking of. For architecture, an example where you had a church that was built in a Protestant land but was very definitely mimicking this, you could look to St. Paul's Cathedral in London, built by Sir Christopher Wren, hmm. um, which was unashamedly built in the in that style, the style of the 17th century. Hmm. So we're getting close to the end. Uh, if we were to kind of sum up what we've been talking about and uh, segue, give a little bit of a teaser for what's coming next, uh, what would you say, again, we're talking about this link between the attitude towards the greatest mystery, uh, the mystery of God, how that informs culture through the, the linkage of, of worship and right worship influences the culture. So and Yes, I, what I'd like to do is explore further how the Victorian neo-Gothic went into the wider uh, culture. Okay. Uh, so that's something we'll do next time. And we're using an iconic example to demonstrate this. And I'll, I'll just give you a taste of it. The guy who designed Liverpool Cathedral is a British architect, the, the Anglican Cathedral. Not called, the wigwam. Not the wigwam, no. Called Sir George Gilbert Scott, one of the foremost architects of his day. In the early 20th century, they had a, a, a competition uh, to design a telephone box. This was won by George Gilbert Scott and that was the red telephone box that then became, a, it almost is the sort of iconic symbol along with the red post box of the British street. Um, I think I used to have a keychain with a red telephone box. I've seen numerous, I've seen te red telephone boxes here in the US um, and they are beloved um, in, in Britain. Uh, they are part of the landscape, even in little villages. They, they look quaint, they look appropriate, whether they're there or in the city. And uh, George Gilbert Scott used all his skill um, and insight, if you like, that, that he brought to bear in the design of this um, amazing edifice of Liverpool Cathedral to bear in the design of street furniture, hmm. the post box, the, uh, sorry, the, the telephone box. Um, and I'm going to show how all points between hotels, civic buildings, 
uh, houses were all influenced in this way by the church architecture. Mm. And what the power that carries them out is their beauty. People want them there. You have to like a telephone box to pay to have it transported to the, the campus of Oklahoma University, uh, University of Oklahoma, which is where I've seen one. Um, so that's one thing. We can explore that next week. and We'll have some more photos of that. Then the other thing that I want to talk about, probably in the, the podcast after that, is um, this analysis of the order. We've talked about this emergent order uh, that, that we see. Um, and I've said we, we perceive intuitively a culture, a pattern. We, we identify certain sorts of culture. We do it naturally. But also we can look at the beauty of um, the order in the cosmos uh, which is also the, the order of the liturgy because the pattern of the liturgy follows the, the motion of the cosmos and the planets. Um, and when that is described mathematically, that actually became the principle for design that you would see in the red telephone box, for example, or in those cathedrals, um, the, the Victorian neo-Gothic or the original Gothic cathedrals in, of the Middle Ages. They, they had numerical proportions contained within them that were actually derived from the observation of the cosmos, but also that those, that those numerical patterns are, are reflected in the rhythms of our worship. And if we believe that our worship is, is made by God for us so that we can then encounter him, um, there's something deeply human that we respond to that works its way in all of this. And you don't need to get your measuring tape out to measure a building to know that you find it beautiful. Uh, but the architect needs to know those numbers in order to pack them into it, to build mm. them into it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about harmony and proportion. That'll be, if we don't get onto it next week, it'll be the week after. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org and if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com.